That's violinist Giovanni Castaneda. I was born in Havana, January 7, uh, 1984. Giovanni was on tour in Japan with his band back in 2008 when Cuban authorities approached him and said they didn't like something he had said about the Cuban government. You know, I made some comments about, you know, how bad things were at the time. And then I was told that we heard that you said, like, uh, you know, a few things about that and that was completely wrong and out of place. And now when, when we get back to Cuba, like, we're going to handle this situation and we're going to see what we're going to do with you. And fearing for his safety, as well as his livelihood, he sought asylum in Canada. Today on Countless Journeys, we're looking at some of the economic and political forces that have played a role in people's decisions to move here, including this story. The first thing is, really, we have to show them that we, we really, you know, we, we really work hard. We just, we don't talk, we just work, 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 work. That's how they like us, because we show them that... Uh, how Filipinos work hard. Erlinda Tesoro came to Canada from the Philippines in 1968 to work in a garment factory in Manitoba. Erlinda was one of the thousands of Filipinos who moved to Canada to work in the textile industry. We hear from Erlinda and her husband, Armand, about the challenges they faced in those early days and about the lives and communities they built over the years. Those stories are coming up. I felt like it was home. It represented, you know, the kindness and compassion and generosity that came to symbolize, you know, Canada. When I fell asleep that night, I felt settled, I felt safe, I felt I could make this work. Our family is just so enriched by having him be a part of it, so we're as grateful as he is. Ce pays, le Canada, qui m'a donné tout, il faut que je donne à ce pays aussi. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays, la générosité de ce pays, l'ouverture qu'a ce pays et surtout cette sensation de paix et de calme. Everywhere I travel now, there's no place like coming home to Canada. Welcome to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. I'm Mark Sakamoto. Back in 2008, Cuba was devastated by not one, not two, but three hurricanes. More than a million Cubans had to evacuate their homes. The damages were enormous. Countless Journeys producer Tina Pitaway joins me now to share with us the story of the storm's impact on a young musician. Welcome, Tina. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. We heard a little bit about Yosfani's story in the opening. He was fearful for his safety and his livelihood following a visit he had from a Cuban government official. That's right. You know, we hear a lot of stories about different forms of political persecution that lead people to seek safety away from their home countries. And this is what happened to Yosvani back in 2008. He was on tour with the Cuban band that he performed with in Japan? He was. And of course, the hurricane had been all over the news. And at one of the performances, an audience member who was from Cuba asked what was happening back home. And, um, you know, they were asking me how was the situation, how was the situation in Cuba. 
So, and I mentioned that the American government offered Cuba some uh, some help, you know, with some goods and to cover basic needs. And but the Cuban government uh, rejected them. Okay, so Yosfani mentions the American aid being rejected, which it was. It was in the news at the time because America offering Cuba aid was kind of a big deal back then. It was unusual for America to offer aid because of the relationship between the two countries. But the Cuban government did, in fact, reject it. And then what happened? Well, Cuba being a communist nation, whenever any of its citizens went on tour like this, uh, they would often have kind of government minders with them. And on the way back to Cuba, Yasvani heard from one of them. And then I was told that, hey, you know... We heard that you said a few things about that, and that was completely wrong and out of place. And now when when we get back to Cuba, like, uh, you know, we're going to handle this situation, and we're going to see what we're going to do with you. Yeah, that's uh, really not what something you want to hear from someone who can basically throw you in jail uh, when you get home. What went through his mind when he heard that? Well, a couple of things. Chief among them was a real concern that he'd be blacklisted so that he'd have a hard time making a living as a musician. Yeah, from the top of my head, I thought, okay, automatically when I land back home, I'm going to be um, probably like um, kicked out from the band. Uh, Who knows if I'm going to be able to work again with another band now having this kind of like on my record, if somebody's going to hire me for another job. I also thought like if they really want to make an example of me, probably they would, I don't know, it would be like jail time or, or something like that. I don't know if, if it would be like that extreme, but definitely having something like that in your record, at least in Cuba, is like, uh, it's a problem that you don't want to have. His mind must have been reeling at this point. Now, when he was told this, where was he? He was on a plane, actually, heading from Tokyo back to Havana. So I was told almost like before um, taking off. So at that moment, everything changed. So I sort of like a panic for a little for a little moment. But he knew his route home included a layover in Toronto. So I was like, okay, we are stopping in Toronto, and I have friends there because I had been here before. So it's not. Um, It wasn't like unknown territory. Like I had some uh, good friends here and I was like, well, when I, as soon as I land, I have to make sure that I, that I call these guys and, and see if somebody can help me. Well, I called, um, they were a family that I knew from way back in the day from my days in Cuba. Um, And they, at, at that point, they were, here in Toronto for like over 10 years. So like they were already, you know, uh, established. So they could guide me through all the processes and everything. So I I called them. It's like, hey, you know, I had this situation. This happened to me. Uh, I think I might have to stay here. Like, uh, can you help me? Like, uh, what should I do? And they were like, no problem. Just tell me your address. Tell me where you are, where you're going to be staying. Give me your room number. I'm... At some point, the night we're going to call you, and then we're going to go pick you up. So did he call from, like, his room? Like, wasn't he afraid of being caught contacting them? Well, he was being as careful as he could be, but he had obviously never been in this kind of a situation, so he was making it up as he went. There were, like, public phones, like, everywhere. 
So I just, uh, I had some change and then I made a call from there. So didn't call from the hotel room or anything. Yasvani knew he had to get a letter to his parents in Cuba. He also had a sister back home. So in those hours after making that call, before he left his hotel room, he wrote them. Well, I had a lot of things like uh, on my mind at the time. You know, of course, I was a part of me was a little afraid. Like I was like, I got a little emotional. Like I didn't, you know, I wasn't expecting that. So I basically had to write a letter for, uh, for my parents. Obviously, like no one saw this one coming. So, so it was a big shock. But you know, at that time, like uh, you don't really have a lot of options. So. I had to run with it, and a really good friend of mine uh, from the band, my uh, my actual roommate at the time, so I left him like a couple of things for him to bring to my family back home, and I gave him a letter, like for my parents. Okay, I definitely want to hear more about what he wrote to his parents. It must have just been so gut wrenching. Absolutely, have to sever it's, those it's, ties. It's unimaginable, really. But in terms of connecting with his friends, what happens next? I'll let Yasvani describe that. So, yeah. As soon as my friends, like, uh, arrived there, they called me to a hotel room. They, they told me, hey, you know, like, we are down here. I don't know if somebody's watching or anything, but we're going to be here in the parking lot. Check that nobody's watching. Look around and see if there's nobody there. Just grab your belongings and make your way down here. And that was exactly what I did. I checked there was nobody kind of, like, in the hall, nobody in the lobby. And then, like, I took my things and, and took off. Gosh, what a nerve-wracking situation. And what a relief it must have been to get that call from his friends that they were there. Yeah, and, and those friends were key to Yasvani, having a relatively smooth introduction to life in Canada. They provided him with a place to live at the outset. I stayed uh, at their house uh, with them like for probably like a couple of months. And those friends helped him get the basics, like warmer clothes, seeing as it was November and winter was coming. I have to start everything like uh, again, like from start from zero, you know, like, um, you know, learn how to how to stay like warm. Like uh, at first I didn't have like a winter boots. So like I was going around in runners. And then like when I was in the snow and then the runners got wet, it was this whole situation. So basically I had to learn how to how to deal with like a winter, um, kind of like a first hand. My friends took me to uh, Honestad at that time. And I remember I bought my first like a winter jacket right there, uh, like gloves and all I, all I needed. Honestly, like the, um, the place was like so amazing. Yeah, Honest Ed's is a little overwhelming at the best of times, <laughs> even if you weren't walking through the doors for the first time from Cuba. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember my first experience with Honest Ed's and it was overwhelming <laughs> and colorful and loud and all of it. So let's get back to him having to tell his family what was going on. You said earlier he had written them a letter that he had asked a friend in his band to take back to them. That's right. Yasvani told me that in the letter, he didn't go into a lot of detail other than to explain the very basics of him not being able to go back to Cuba. It w I wasn't really like expanding on it. It was more like, hey, you know, this is what is going to happen. Uh, I had the situation took place and this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I think it's for the best. And of course, he called them as well as soon as he got the chance. I called them on the phone, so I had to basically like repeat the whole story and let them know exactly what happened. So, you know, this is what it is. So I sent some money back. Uh, here's some stuff that you guys needed. 
But, you know, we're going to talk about that like another day. But very quickly after making that call, reality started to set in. And Yosvani's concern for his family grew. Yes, I started getting a little worried after after I was already here. And so I was like, okay, since I am not a target anymore, like, why? How can this affect my family? Like, I, I, that, I, at first, I wasn't worried about that, but then it started kind of like to hit me. Like, uh, is anything going to happen to them? I can totally understand the rush of adrenaline getting him through that first day or two. But then the the real fear setting in. For sure. But fortunately, there was no retaliation against his parents. I know. There was no nothing, um, uh, no physical retaliation or anything. But his sister was sidelined for no apparent reason from her university studies. And she wound up losing an academic year in the long run. There were some, some vague reasons. Like the reasons they gave it was like really like, vague like pretty empty now we heard some of his music off the top of the show and it was his livelihood as a musician that yosvani was really concerned about that launched his like whole decision to seek asylum so how did he get established in the music industry here well those friends who got him out of the hotel and gave him a place to live they were really plugged into the music scene in toronto especially in the latin uh music scene here in toronto through them, I met like uh, a lot of um, a lot of other like musicians, and they also like helped me out to do all the all the steps that I needed to uh, to do to actually uh, start the immigration like, like process. Like uh, they um, went with me to all the appointments that I had and helped me out to do any paperwork that needed to be done, uh, anything that I needed to look online, everything. Wow, so really he had the support of a solid community to help him not just get established in the industry, but also to help him with the bureaucracy of immigration, which uh, I'm sure can be pretty overwhelming. Had Yosvani ever been to Canada prior to this? Actually, he had when he was a teenager touring with a school band. He says that that early experience really influenced his decision to seek asylum here. Oh yeah, I loved it. I loved it, especially since it was like uh, the first uh, country that I went outside of Cuba at uh, such an early age. I remember I was in the conservatory and I was part of this band. Uh, they came here to Canada uh, during like a cultural like exchange. And so the first time we came here was in the summer of the 2000. And we went to uh, the whole province of New Scotia. We also did like a couple of cities in New Brunswick. And then the next year, 2001, again in the summer, we came here to Toronto. There was a festival happening. So, so yeah, I always had that, always had that in my heart. And as crazy as it sounds, like everything kind of like it went full circle. And when that situation happened, um, it was unfortunate in one hand, but on the, on the other side, it was like, kind of like um, a blessing in disguise because happened to be like back here. Isn't that amazing that the first country he visited outside of Cuba went on to become the place that gave him refuge when he needed it the most? It really is. 
This experience has clearly changed his life pretty much completely in all aspects of it. Did he talk at all about how it has perhaps changed his music? He did talk about that, actually. You know, music is like any art. It's influenced by your experiences and, of course, your culture. And Yosvani had some really great insights into how all of these experiences come through in his music. Being here in Canada, uh, it actually, like, made me a little bit more, even more proud of my, of my roots, So I started more like digging deeper into my own roots too because like at that moment, you you know, you are not in your country and you feel a little bit more like that side of you. You don't want it to die. You don't want to change it for nothing. And of course, now I'm a Canadian citizen, so I'm Canadian as well. But Cuba is always with me like everywhere I go. And of course, in my music uh, here now that I exposed to uh, so many different cultures and so many... Um, so many different kinds of music that open uh, opens uh, uh, your spectrum. Or opens like the way you see, uh, you look, the way you hear the music is different. And of course, I I've been able to incorporate some of those elements too on the music that I do, and try to mix it with, of course, with my Cuban roots. Isn't that something? Being in a brand new place that makes you, almost forces you to dig deeper into your own past and into your roots. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was some longing for home there and, uh, you know, just an exploration that other, otherwise he really might not have experienced. Right, yeah, exactly. And in terms of his personal life, has he ever been able to see his family again over the years? Yeah, he has. His parents visited Canada, and he's been back and forth to Cuba with actually no real issues. And he's created a family here in Canada as well. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I have, like, two beautiful children. Uh, my wife is, like, Canadian citizen, too, like, born and raised here. Uh, so, yeah, that also helped me a lot, kind of, like, to fill that void like, you know, of not having, like, my Cuban family with me. Uh, I made my own. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and so, yeah, and that's great. And, Mark, when I wrapped up my conversation with Yosvani, I asked him if there was anything that I hadn't asked him that he wanted to talk about. And he had these words, particularly for people who might be struggling with the challenges of adjusting to life here. I just wanted to say, like, uh, you never know how many people are going through a hard time especially adjusting to a uh, to a new country and so yeah i hope like at least my story can some people can feel identify with that and you know probably like feel better about like the opportunities that kind of come up for them it's hard but at the same time it's like a, it's like a new opportunity to start from zero and build something great um you know i can't wait to you know to see what else is in a store for me. But so far, I only have good things to say about Canada and the way I, I've been treated here and, you know, how I've, I feel, like, welcome from the first day. Musician Yasvani Castaneda with his song Toast.
The dream of building a better life is a key driving force behind much of the immigration throughout the world. The Philippines is the number one source of newcomers to Canada, accounting for about 15% of total immigration between 2011 and 2016. Filipinos have been coming here for generations, contributing to the economic well-being of countless industries and communities. In the 1960s and 1970s, Canada's garment industry relied heavily on Filipino workers. And Tina's here with the story of a couple who moved to Winnipeg in the late 1960s as a part of that wave of workers. That's right, Mark. This is a story from the Oral History Collection. Emily Burton is an oral historian with the museum, and back in 2017, she sat down in Winnipeg to speak with Erlinda and Armand Tesoro. Erlinda was born in 1944. She was one of eight kids from a big Catholic family. Oh, my father is a fisherman, and my mom is a housewife, and I want to be a nurse. And I talked to my, to my dad, and I asked if I can pursue this degree, and my dad said, no, I'm so sorry that I can't. He cannot afford. Erlinda's parents were at that point putting her two older brothers through university, so the money for Erlinda just wasn't there. So what I did is I want to learn how to sew. By then, my, my aunt, who has a sewing school, I went there and I learned how to do, you know, how to sew, to do patterns, and, and I learned, and I start doing it at home because I have a sewing machine, and I earn money. So I keep saving my money, and then I went to, I went to, uh, to a business college, and I took a secretarial course, and I was able to graduate, and then I was able to get a better job after that. And what about Armand at this time? Was he in school as well? Yes, he was. They met in their teens, and Armand was interested in working in the medical technology field. But he was also bitten by the entertainment bug. So they called me Pat Boone Jr. because I was young. So, and then I, 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 was, I was lucky enough to join a group that they, we go from doing floor shows uh, because the, there was an active U.S. basis during that time in the Philippines. Wow. Entertaining American service members on bases is not where I thought this story was headed. <laughs> where did he learn English? Well, I didn't realize before working on this story that there are more than 100 languages spoken in the Philippines. But Armand learned English at an early age. When I went to school, it, it was only in English. Because we, well, we were once under the Spanish regime for two centuries, and then afterwards the Americans came. And so during that time, everything is English. The books are in English. So having English under your belt is a real advantage then? It was, but Armand's father wasn't so sure about his choices. He wanted him to work towards something that was a bit more secure. But my dad says, hey, wait a minute, he says, uh, this show business is not forever, he says. Why don't I borrow some money and you go to school? Uh, doesn't matter, you can, you can, once you have a job, you can pay it back. So I, I, uh, I believe what my dad told me. I took a course called Bachelor of Science in Medical Technology. So where did they meet? Were they a couple at this point? They met when they were teenagers and in fact had been engaged for a few years at this point, uh, engaged since 1962. Now, Erlinda had the sewing experience under her belt and she also enrolled in secretarial school and she gained some experience in government and Armand was getting his Bachelor of Science. 
So a real mix of work and education for both of them, really. Yes. And then in 1968, the Canadian government launched a recruitment program for skilled workers who worked in the sewing trade. And Erlinda decided to apply. Yeah, because uh, that's my dream. That's my, my dream is to go abroad. And the only way I can live is this is my opportunity because I don't have, I don't have to worry about my fare. And my, my allowances, everything is paid for. Erlinda was one of the first wave of 30 Filipinos to be accepted. She arrived in Winnipeg in October of 1968. So what did this program offer? Well, it provided two-year contracts with garment manufacturing companies and a path to citizenship in Canada. Their airfare was covered and the program provided housing and a little bit of money to get settled. In all, about 1,200 workers were brought in with this program and they all went on to sponsor friends and family as well. So Orlinda really provided a path for Amon to come here then? Yes, which is kind of an interesting twist because often it's the man's education and skill set that lead the way for immigration to be an option. But many of the workers brought in with this program were women, and that led to them being able to have job security as well as for them to be able to sponsor others. Yeah, that's interesting. So what was Erlinda's first impression of Canada? Well, it was pretty disorienting and kind of scary, actually. Like when I first came, I said to myself, what place is this? I was so scared, like, what will happen to me? That's how I, we all feel. Like, we don't know where we're going. We, just, we were just brought to that hotel, and that's why everybody was crying. What we did is crying every day. It's so sad, yeah, very sad. And it was so cold when we first came, and we were not used to that. She would have been young and really on her own for the first time. Yes, it would have been incredibly stressful. And then the next day... We were divided in so many groups, and the different manager of the factory came and picked us, each, each group, and bring us to the factory. And that's how I started, yeah. First day is really, we have to show them that we, we really, you know, we, we really work hard. We just, we don't talk, we just work, 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 work. That's how they like us, because we show them that uh, how Filipinos work hard. When did Armand join her? Actually, a few months later, on Canada Day in 1969. And under the rules of his travel, they had to marry within a month of his arrival. There was that, that sort of contract that when I come here, within a month, we have to get married. So I didn't have any cho- choice to look for another woman. <laughs> but Erlinda. <laughs> anyway, so after a month, uh, we, we got married in August 27. 1969. The way we were married is we don't have any money. I have only $200 in my bank. And my group, my friends, you know, the 28 women that was in my group, they offer to cook something for us. And our sponsor, who was uh, working with the immigration office, they offered to be our sponsor at the wedding, and they offered their house. For reception. For reception. For the reception. Oh, we were, we, we, we got married in St. Mary's Cathedral. And apparently, according to the statisticians, we were the first Filipino couple who got married in Manitoba. Armand got work at a local hospital and would eventually juggle three jobs. Three jobs. Oh, yeah, so. it's such hard work because 
as is so often the case with newcomers to Canada, they were sending money back home to help support their families. And after a year or more of this, they were finding it really hard to save any money for themselves. So what they did is they sponsored their siblings to come to Canada too. So instead of just us, then it's them, then it's bigger money that can be sent to the Philippines. And then that's how all these relatives uh, started. Erlinda sponsored two brothers and a sister and Armand. Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. What a difference would it have been to have all that family in Winnipeg. Yes, and they started a family at this point as well. And Armand was getting into the business of actually of selling cookware. With so much expansion and new families, business was booming. And he wound up hiring 12 Filipinos to work for his cookware business. That time we were able to save some money and we were able to buy a house, a smaller house. So at this point, was Erlinda still working with the garment factory? Well, she would actually leave after her contract was up. I was helping Arman, like assistant to the, to the business, and I was making good sales. She, yeah. she was the one doing all the, uh, paperworks, the paperwork, even the income tax, she, she looks after that. She left her son with her sister so she could work part-time at a department store. I like meeting people. That's why I like working in the store. And she's always the girl who smiles. And <laughs> Of course, that's your job. You have to, to smile always. Now, Armand wasn't registered to work as a medical technologist in Canada. So he took courses and little by little, he would work and go to school, then go back to work. It took him years of studying on his lunch breaks and working late to get his degree. Because uh, you cannot get promoted unless you have other qualifications. So, and I, I, I went to microbiology and uh, I became the uh, charge tech in that area. Yeah, that's such a common theme for so many newcomers who arrive here with qualifications that are good in their home country but aren't recognized here, right? Yeah, and Erlinda said this was pretty common for people who arrived when she did, but it was still a good job at the time. After they, they finished their contract with the employer, what they did is some went back to school, some are nurses, so most of them are now, like they want to be advanced, so they're all in different kinds of uh, jobs. So it's been 50 years since their arrival. Do they still have that sense of community? Absolutely. Now there are reunions and that kind of thing, and people have moved around a bit, but there's still a really solid sense of community. When, during those days when, in, in the 70s, early 70s, we are all like brothers and sisters. Gen but generally speaking, everybody's still friendly. We showed our best for the government of Canada and for everybody that uh, we work hard. Yeah, it's actually interesting. You know, I really do. Um, I, I felt that growing up so much in Medicine Hat where, you know, it was a pretty white town and it still is. But, you know, in the, in the 80s, um, there were like 12 Japanese families and they all were there because of the internment and, oh, okay. you know, and they were all uh, farmers, like they were all vegetable farmers, basically. And, you know, it was such a deep community in the middle of the prairies right. where we'd, you know, gather and eat sashimi and do Japanese dancing and wow. the kids would take Japanese classes and... And we were, you know, fourth generation Canadians at that point in time, but still had this really deep uh, connection to, 
I don't even even know if it was Japan so much as the Japanese community that were the twelve families、mm-hmm. in this small prairie town. Right.、So、I really understand what he's what he's what they're talking about here. Yeah, there and there are important ties that that I think just through living your life, you you tend to appreciate as you get older, and you want to foster it in in your own children. Absolutely. Like even now, right now in.、Um, In this time of stress, and in, in this time of you know, you seek comfort. I'm making sukiyaki. I'm making you know sashimi.、Uh, I have forty pounds of rice in my basement. You know, like I've I've reverted、yeah. back. I'm basically my grandfather. I'm basically Hideo right now, and 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 it's just for and it's for comfort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's like a hundred and. Ten years since somebody like actually was from Japan, but it's that's what that's my default. Yeah, it's and it's returning to those things that, as you say, bring you comfort. Absolutely, Tina. Thanks so much for bringing us their story. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. Subscribe to Countless Journeys on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or visit podcast.pier21.ca. Sound designed by Paolo Pietro Paolo and Natasha Aziz. A big thank you to today's guests and all the museum staff who dug into the oral histories to find stories and who helped make this episode. For more about the museum, visit pier21.ca or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.